welcome to the ADE Spotlight Podcast. My name is Jim Haggerty. As a provider of substance abuse assessments and client management databases, we have the privilege to work with terrific partners across the United States and Canada. In this series, we plan to talk to some of our colleagues about their work in the field of substance abuse assessment, prevention, and treatment. By sharing knowledge and experiences, it is my hope that we can all learn from each other. What we have learned, what the challenges are now and in the future, and how the ever-evolving technology impacts our work. ADE remains committed to working with our partners and using our experience with both substance use assessment and technology to provide the tools our colleagues rely on. As we learn from each other, we improve the value of our services. My guest this morning is Stephen Shelton. Stephen is an attorney in private practice in Fenton, Michigan, and he practices law throughout the state of Michigan. Over the last 10 years, he has represented hundreds of clients in criminal cases, ranging from minor misdemeanors to major felony charges. Uh, Stephen has also been named one of Michigan's elite super lawyers by other attorneys in Michigan for four years running. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Stephen, and I appreciate your time. Oh, I'm glad to do it. Thank you for inviting me. You have an interesting motivation for getting into law. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what prompted you to go to law school and pursue this course? Well, I, you know, I've always had this kind of split personality. Um, as you're probably aware, I was in radio for a very, very long time. But I also had this kind of, I don't know, I refer to it as my uh, nerdy dark side, where, uh, you know, I, I was always interested in kind of the more intellectual pursuits, and I Growing up, I, I grew up in a lot of little small towns uh, where I was frequently the only person not related to everyone else, and so I kind of understood what it's like to be discriminated against. And so I always had an interest in that. And, you know, for instance, when I was in college, I was uh, involved in the, my campus's chapter of the ACLU, and I was president of the uh, uh, Amnesty International chapter. So I always had this kind of real interest in, in constitutional rights and civil rights and protecting the rights of people. And when deregulation hit radio and, you know, the number of companies that owned radio stations went from a few hundred down to about six, uh, and they started firing people left and right, and there were really no more jobs in radio, um, I said, you know what, it's probably time that I indulged a more intellectual side of my personality, um, and I went to law school. And what uh, type of law do you practice now? What makes up your caseload? I do primarily criminal defense work. I do some other things, too. I do you know, a little bit of wills. I do some civil litigation. I do a fairly significant amount of appeals, both civil and criminal, although mostly it's criminal work. And then at my firm, we have another attorney who works for me who handles real property law, and she does estate planning and uh, business law and things like that. So it's it's a mix, but probably half or more of what I do, uh, probably significantly more than half of what I do is criminal defense work. The reason that I that I'm excited about this talk is we're doing a series of podcasts related to DUI offenses, uh, drug offenses, uh, impaired driving offenses, that sort of thing. Uh, we're talking to treatment providers. We're talking to educators. We're talking to prevention specialists. And I thought it would be worthwhile to have the perspective of uh, an attorney who works with individuals who find themselves in the unfortunate situation of being in the court system for a DUI or drug-related offense. I think that'll be an interesting perspective to have. Uh, so that's sort of the basis for this conversation here. Uh, so I'm interested chiefly in DUI and drug-related offenses. What percentage of your clients uh, are, are struggling with those issues? Well, if you look overall, um, if under the broad category of drug-related or alcohol-related, um, I would say, you know, well over, well over half of the cases that I'm, I'm involved in have some kind of connection uh, to drug or alcohol use. Um, a much smaller portion of that is related to driving. I, I guess about 15% of my total criminal cases, 15 to 20%, probably involve uh, drunk driving or driving under the influence of drugs or, or something related to that. Do you see that number increasing or decreasing over the years? It has been the, the number of people who, well, again, it depends on whether you're talking the larger, <laughs> the larger issue of somehow drug-related directly or indirectly, or you're talking about um, drinking and driving or, or drug uh, use and driving-related cases. 
if you're talking about specifically driving-related infractions, um, it has dropped a lot. Um, when I first started out several years ago, um, I would get sometimes seven or eight calls a month from people who were arrested on uh, drinking and driving-related charges or, or driving while under the influence of drug charges. Um, it has fallen substantially to the point where I get, I probably get three or four calls a month on those, and then you know I, I end up being retained on one or two of those a month. So it is, it has dropped pretty dramatically in the last, just mostly in the last couple of years, to be honest. Our our research supports that as well. What do you make of that? Well, I think the the biggest part of it really is um, just the public perception. When I was growing up, it was uh, right before they changed the driving age to 20, or the uh, uh, drinking age to 21 as well. Um, and so it wasn't unusual even in high school uh, to have seniors in high school talking about how they went to this, you know, big party and they came, you know, they drove home and they were drunk and they barely made it home without driving the car off the side of the road and everybody thought it was a cute story. But, you know, groups got involved in this because it is a dangerous activity and people were far too glib about it. And so you had these groups get involved, like Mothers Against Drunk Driving and Students Against Drunk Driving, and they did a really good job of making people aware that, you know, this isn't something that's funny and, and, uh, and, and to be joked about or, or to brag about. This is actually a very, very serious problem, and people get hurt and people get killed. And not a few, quite a lot of them do. It's extremely dangerous behavior. Now, to a certain extent, I would argue that they may have gone overboard on that, uh, however, you know, definitely it was successful in making people realize that drinking and driving is a seriously dangerous thing to do and that, you know, you may not even realize how much you've had to drink before you get into a situation where it's potentially dangerous. Um, and so I think that that change in attitude towards drinking and driving has really had the most to do with the change in, you know, people's behaviors and whether or not they're going to get arrested for it. I've heard people say, well, it's because the police aren't looking for people as much as they were. And I find that to be absolutely not true. Literally, you know, 90% of the clients I deal with who were involved in some kind of traffic stop, they found that the police were trying to, you know, trap them into saying something that would lead them to a potential, you know, alcohol or drug-related while driving charge. And, you know, if they weren't involved in that kind of activity, then you know, ultimately it's unsuccessful. But it's not because police aren't trying to get people on these charges. I think it's because the number of people who are engaging in this kind of behavior has fallen dramatically. I think there may be some truth to that. It, there may be some truth also to the fact that there are less police on the road. I think, you know, with the um, economic downturn over the past five or seven years, I think uh, that the uh, enforcement is down because there are less police on the road in some cases. It may, it may be as simple as that. I mean, there are still, I, I haven't noticed a, a, a big change in the number of people who are being stopped. What I have noticed is a big change in the number of people who are being uh, arrested on uh, drunk driving or drugged driving related type charges. So I haven't, I haven't seen a real change in the number of stops. What I've seen is just a, a big change in the nature of the charges that come out of those stops. Let's talk about those that are stopped that then find themselves charged with a DUI offense. One of the uh, things that we see uh, elsewhere, uh, some of the reports that I get from some of the people we deal with around the country, is that there is an increased likelihood that the initial charges, which may be a DUI or an OUI or whatever the the local term for it may be, that in, in many cases these are being now pled down to some lesser offense that doesn't result in the uh, harsher penalties that may come along with a DUI. Do you, do you, do you see that in your day-to-day uh, -day work? Um, I see some of that, but not as much as you would think, and quite honestly, not as much as I would like from my perspective. Um, it, and I think it's very specific to the jurisdiction because the laws, of course, vary greatly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Uh, the laws in Michigan are vastly different than the laws in, say, Oklahoma or Ohio or Georgia or New York. Um, in Michigan, what we frequently see on a first offense basis 
is we have we have two different things. We have what's called operating under the influence of, li of liquor, which is OUIL, and we have operating while visibly impaired. Um, operating while visibly impaired doesn't require a specific blood alcohol content. It's but a reasonable person looking at this individual think maybe they've been drinking. The operating under the influence of liquor charge, on the other hand, requires that there be um, you know a 0.08 blood alcohol content or higher. So a lot of times what the best we can do in most jurisdictions is if we've got somebody who's got an operating under the influence of liquor charge, the 0.08 threshold, we can often get that knocked down to an operating while visibly impaired on a first offense. Now, the, why that's significant is it lowers the maximum fines by a couple of hundred bucks, and more significantly, what it does is it allows the person to have a restricted license for the entire time that, um, that their license is uh, impinged upon as a result of the conviction. For instance, if you get an OUIL, you have a six-month suspension of your license, and after the first certain amount of time, I, I can never remember off the top of my head, I think it's 30 days, um, you can have a restricted license. You can go to work, to medical appointments, to court, and to school. But for that first period of time on an OUIL, you cannot drive at all for any reason. Whereas if you knock it down to an operating while visibly impaired, for that entire time, you have 90 days in which you have a restricted license. Now, you can't drive to the store, you can't drive to the movies, but you can drive to work, you can drive to school, you can drive to medical appointments, and you can drive to court. And that's a pretty significant difference between the two. Now, when you get to a second offense or a third offense, that distinction doesn't really matter at all because an operating while visibly impaired second offense has the exact same uh, penalties as an operating under the influence of liquor second offense and the same for a third offense. Um, so the most we can usually do is get people to not, is to get the prosecutor to knock it down to an operating while visibly impaired on a first offense. Second and third offenses, most prosecutors in Michigan at least have a no deals policy. Um, even if the assistant prosecutor who's working on the case thinks, you know, this is a, a bad case, it should be knocked down to something else, or there's some kind of, you know, mitigating factor. For instance, the person had been drinking and, you know, somebody got hurt and they were trying to drive them to the hospital or something. Um, they, they can't do it because the county prosecutor who is elected, of course, doesn't want to have, you know, this reputation as, well, this person, you know, they, this prosecutor is easy on drunk driving charges. So on second and third offenses, typically we don't get any kind of an offer. It's either go to trial or plead straight up. First offenses, we can usually get it knocked down somewhat, but it is virtually impossible to get it to something that is not alcohol-related. Um, in Michigan, we also have a thing called super drunk for a first offense, and that is if you have a blood alcohol content that is uh, higher than double the normal rate, so if it's a, or the minimum rate for an operating under the influence of liquor. So if they have a 0.16 or above, that's what they call a super drunk. And on the super drunk cases, you know, if you're convicted, you have, um, you know, the ignition interlock is required. Um, there are harsher penalties. The, uh, the suspension is more difficult. All of those things happen to you. And on those cases, a lot of times, and it varies widely, but there's basically three approaches. One is they say absolutely no deals on those. They treat them like a second or third offense. Um, most places will say what we will do is on a super drunk, we will allow you to have a standard operating under the influence of liquor without the super drunk enhancement, but no visibly impaired. Um, and the third approach, which is pretty rare, is they will still let you do a visibly impaired, but then typically they'll, you know, say, but we have to have a sentencing agreement that the defendant has to do, you know, A, B, C, and D, which is not normally required of somebody who has a drunk driving related offense. Um, now that's, that's Michigan. It may be different in other places, and I'm sure it is. But when it comes to drunk driving offenses, prosecutors do not like to make really big deals. The, the best that we can do, and, and what we call a win most of the time, um, is if we can get it knocked down to a visibly impaired on a first offense, because that still allows the person to drive to work, and that's what most people's major concern is. That concept of the super drunk law is interesting. You may not know this, but is that unique to Michigan? Do other states have similar kinds of super drunk laws? I, I know that a few states do. I don't know how common it is because, you know, I, I only practice in Michigan, so I couldn't tell you nationally how common that is. Um, I do know that a few other states have it. Yeah. You brought up another interesting point, too, about the jurisdiction. There was a fairly high-profile a DUI arrest uh, here in Michigan a while back. It was a 
an athlete uh, was arrested for a DUI. And, and as part of the conversation, the uh, argument was raised that uh, because he was arrested in a certain area, he received more favorable treatment than he would have received had he been arrested somewhere else. So how much does jurisdiction matter in terms of where I'm arrested? Well, that's, that's kind of more of a venue question in some ways because it's still the same laws. Um, and it, it, it matters a, a lot. In fact, it matters. The, the biggest significance when I'm dealing with cases is whether it ended up being you know, prosecuted by, say, a city attorney or a county prosecutor. Uh, because city attorneys are much more willing to work on most of these cases than our county prosecutors. Uh, and I think the reason for that is politics. Um, county prosecutors are elected, of course, at least in Michigan. Um, and like I said, we have groups like Mothers Against Drunk Driving who are very active in you know, uh, endorsing or campaigning against uh, prosecutors and putting a lot of pressure on prosecutors to be super tough on drunk driving-related cases. And so no prosecutor that I'm aware of um, is brave enough to say, wait a second, maybe you guys are going a little too far. You're labeling everybody who gets pegged on one of these cases as, you know, the scum of the earth. And maybe there are, there are times when somebody deserves a little bit more of a break. Um, politicians are not well known for their courage. <laughs> and so county prosecutors are a lot more likely to take a very tough stance on these cases whereas city attorneys are typically contracted. They're not elected. Um, and they have a lot more discretion and they have a lot more ability to look at a case on an individual basis and say, you know, this is a situation where maybe this person, you know, was over the uh, legal limit, but they were literally driving three driveways down the road to their house. It was four in the morning. There was no one else on the road. Um, the only reason that they got found was a police officer just happened to be driving by um, and saw them or, you know, uh, an angry ex-wife called and said, you know, they're driving drunk or, or something along those lines. And a, and a city attorney has a little bit more leeway to deal with that. And the city attorneys also have a little bit more leeway to deal with some of the collateral issues that come with it. Um, you know, if, you, if I have a client who has uh, a commercial driver's license, a CDL, and they get a drunk driving case, basically their career is over. And sometimes a, a city attorney will be in a bit more of a position where they can say, when we can do something that will um, have the same fines, it'll have the same penalties, except it won't be reported to the Secretary of State as you know, a, a moving violation for purposes of having license sanctions. Um, a good example of that is there's something in Michigan um, called operating an off-road vehicle under the influence of drugs. Um, it reads exactly the same as the drunk driving statute. The difference is it's intended for things where you don't have to have a driver's license and you're not on the road. Things like, a, a, you know, if you're driving a, a quad four-wheeler uh, through your field, you know, in the back 40, or uh, you're on a snowmobile out in the middle of a field or on a frozen lake where you don't have to necessarily have a driver's license and you're not, um, you're not on the road. That's what that statute's intended for. And sometimes you can get a city attorney who's willing to say, well, we'll charge it under this instead so this person doesn't lose uh, doesn't lose their license and lose their career. Um, usually you have to have a, a pretty sympathetic uh, defendant to do something like that. But at least they, you know, they have more of that freedom, whereas a prosecutor's office doesn't have that. Now, having said that, again, prosecutors are political. Uh, and sometimes if somebody is well-connected to the elected prosecutor, you can get up the elected prosecutor and if, it, if the prosecutor thinks that it will work to their advantage politically, sometimes you can get them to make some kind of a deal. But that's pretty unusual. Um, it definitely skirts on the gray edges, to put it kindly, of their ethical <laughs> requirements. Um, but sometimes that happens as well. So it does make a big difference as to where you're arrested and, more importantly, which agency it is that's prosecuting the case. And you don't really have any control over that as the defendant's advocate, do you? No, we don't have any control over who's prosecuting or, or where it's brought. You know, sometimes uh, sometimes we can, but usually to go from bad to worse, not the other way around, you know. Um, 
you know, there there are ways I can get a case that's that's being prosecuted by the city prosecutor, sometimes taken to the county prosecutor instead, but usually that's not good news for my client if that happens, so we try to avoid it. Uh, let's talk about the laws then in general. And we can speak to the laws in Michigan because, of course, you're, you would be well-versed in that. You've been doing this for now for, for a number of years. Have the laws uh, um, changed over the years? And, and if, they, if they have changed, have they become uh, stricter? Um, they have changed a lot. Like the super drunk law um, is a relatively new law. Uh, it did not exist when I started practicing law, and it just came into effect um, a number of years ago. I can't remember how many years now, five, six, something along those lines. They're starting to realize, however, that maybe some of the punishments are a little too harsh and maybe uh, counterproductive. You know, one of the things that uh, we have here in Michigan are driver responsibility fees. And they were implemented, um, you know, as part of this furor over, you know, drunk drivers are horrible people and they should be punished as severely as we possibly can. And so in addition to the fines, in addition to the license sanctions, in addition to the other things that applied, if you had a drunk driving offense and you went to get your driver's license, every year you had to pay $1,000 in addition to the normal fee for your driver's license every single year for two or three years in order to get your license. If you had a, a operating while visibly impaired, it was $500. Well, the problem is, of course, that at the same time, you were suspending people's driver's license. So they couldn't get they, – they had to drive to work to get the money to pay these fines. But if they had a suspended license, they couldn't drive to work. Well, the only way to get the license unsuspended was to pay the fines, yeah. <laughs> which they couldn't get. And it just created this, this circle. And then to make matters worse – in Michigan, if you get or uh, if you get convicted of driving on a suspended license or really any kind of moving violation, while you have your license suspended or revoked, it takes that period of revocation or, or suspension and it tacks it on to the end of what your prior one was. So, you know, I have one client who's not eligible now for a driver's license until 2021-12 because he's been picked up so many times on driving while license suspended because. You know, he couldn't pay those driver responsibility fees back in, you know, 2004 or whatever it was. Um, and But he has to work, so he keeps driving to work. And the only reason his license is suspended at this point was because he couldn't pay those driver responsibility fees. Uh, now, they've started to realize maybe this is not such a great idea. So Michigan is phasing out the driver responsibility fees. We started phasing them out uh, towards the end of last year, and they will be completely gone by 2019. So that's kind of good news. Um, but overall, they become a lot more strict. Now, a lot of the, uh, the drinking and driving laws that we have on the, in the, uh, on the state books were kind of mandated by the federal government. Remember, it used to be 0.10 in order to have a drunk driving. That was the threshold. Well, then the federal government came along and tied a lot of their road funding to you know, what the drunk driving laws in the state said. And if the state wanted to be able to maintain their roads, um, they had to lower the threshold for a drunk driving case to 0.08. A lot of those laws have a sunset clause, however, and once that period of time runs out, it will go back up to 0.10. Typically, state legislatures are you know, moving to extend that and keep it down to a 0.08. But certainly, outside of, um, outside of sentencing issues, they're not really making, doing much to restrict uh, what happens with the initial threshold of being able to be charged and convicted on these kind of cases. One of the th things that I found interesting is Michigan has something called an implied consent law. Now, my limited understanding of this is that by virtue of having a driver's license, a driver th th then is, is uh, giving consent for a um, to to have a breathalyzer test done at the time of a traffic stop or, or potential arrest, and if uh, this uh, if a driver refuses that, then there's a then there's a series of other sanctions that kick in. Uh, do you think, uh, or in your experience, are, are most people aware of this? I don't think most people are aware of it. Um, and it's something that a, a lot of people get confused on because they're under the assumption that, 
you know, you, you have certain rights. You have the right not to testify against yourself. You have the right to, you know, not allow for a search of your car or your person, that sort of a thing. And people lump that into being part of that protection. But as you said, it's, it's an implied consent law. And part of what it says in the state of Michigan is if you get a driver's license, you agree that you will submit to these uh, breath tests. What happens is if you don't, your driver's license gets suspended usually for about a year. Um, sometimes, honestly, it may be smarter to take that hit. <laughs> if you know you've been drinking and if you and you know that um, you know submitting to this test is just going to sink your ship, sometimes it's better to go ahead and take that uh, take that hit on getting the suspended license and worry about it later, as opposed to getting yourself into a lot more trouble with a, a drunk driving charge. Um, but most people are not aware of this, and it gets a lot of people into trouble because you know the police will also. Uh, I, I don't know if they're if they're necessarily abusing the law or if they um, don't understand it themselves. But a lot of times, police will, you know, try to threaten someone that they have to submit to these preliminary breath tests, these PBTs, um, even if they're not driving. You know, they had a, a problem with this in East Lansing a while back, where students walking along campus were being approached by police officers who said, "You look like you've been drinking below this tube, but we're going to suspend your driver's license." Is you know? that right? Um, and they can't do that. Uh, so it does create a little bit of confusion. It, the, the intent is, of course, to make it easier to catch drunk drivers. Um, and I think it's probably effective in that regard, but I, I think that it also uh, creates a trap for a lot of people who are just trying to stand up for their rights and don't understand the distinction. I understand the logic in, in your answer, when you, when you say that some people should, uh, they may be aware of it, but they should take the hit uh, because it may be in their best interest to do so. I, I understand that. Uh, I, I guess I would be more concerned about people who believe they have the right to refuse it when, in fact, uh, they may not. And, and, and then find out later that because they refused, uh, they have this additional uh, sanction. Right, and and the police, when before they they do this, they're supposed to, you know, read this statement to you that tells you you have the right to refuse it, but if you refuse, your license is going to be suspended, and and all of these things. Um, but the problem is that when you, you know, I don't know about you, but I've been pulled over a couple of times, and even though I'm a criminal defense attorney, I still get nervous when I get pulled over by the police. You know. Um, and when that happens, you're not thinking straight. And this is especially true if it's, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning on the side of the road when it's 12 degrees below zero, um, and you're tired, and now you've got this police officer who, you know, is probably trying to intimidate you. At that point, the adrenaline starts running. People don't start thinking clearly. Um, and the fight-or-flight instinct kicks in, and either they become very submissive or they become very defiant. And that's where you get a lot of these problems where people don't understand what it is that they're doing. They don't understand that either they have the right uh, to say no, but their license is going to be suspended most likely, or where they um, you know, just submit to it, not realizing they don't have to. So the, the problem is that people have to make that decision on their own, usually when they're not in a great state of mind to make any kind of decision. And that's kind of a bad formula. You know, the conversation I have with with uh, the people that uh, we work with across the country and and uh, whether they're in a working in a probation department or whether they're a, a private agency is where when we're looking at these DUI offenses or, the, or these drug related offenses and that is walking the line between uh, multiple lines I suppose between uh, punishing the individual for breaking the law uh, protecting the the public at large, providing some some public safety, as well as then assessing and treating the individual. We have it seems like we're we're juggling these three concepts. When when we in your experience, when you have somebody who finds themselves in this position, are we doing enough to look at the individual, do a complete assessment on the individual? Uh, decide uh, 
whether or not or at what level they need some sort of intervention, some sort of treatment? Are we, are we doing enough there? You know, that varies a lot from place to place. Um, in Michigan, for a long time, the focus has been almost entirely on punishing the individual. Um, there, a lot of it was justified in the language of public safety, but really it was about punishment. Um, there wasn't really a whole lot that was done uh, in terms of, you know, really assessing whether or not the person needed some kind of treatment. I say that as a very blanket statement. It, it varies greatly from place to place. Um, I can give you a couple of examples. Um, my office is in Fenton. Uh, we have a district court here in Fenton, and the judge we have at this district court um, is one of the best judges I know. He, he looks at every case individually. He doesn't just cookie-cut every single case. Everybody who has this charge gets this and this and this. And to make matters even better, um, there's a, uh, a probation officer who works with that court um, who is one of the better probation officers that I've ever worked with, and he really does do a good um, – he does a, a good assessment of people. Um, you know, we, we often talk in, in criminal defense that there are two kinds of people who become probation officers. There are people who like to bully people, but for some reason couldn't get a job as a guard or a police officer, and so they became probation officers because they like to boss people around. Or you have people who, you know, want to be social workers. Um, and the latter is actually much better because they, especially in these kinds of cases, because they're much more concerned about whether or not you know, this person is getting what they need to avoid being back in this position again, as opposed to the former kind of person who just wants to, you know, hammer this person as often as they can, uh, just because just because they can. Um, and so in this court that we have here locally, where I practice quite a bit, um, you know, we have, we have a, a probation officer who will sometimes, you know, and, and not infrequently, he'll assess somebody's situation, he'll actually say to the judge, I don't think this person needs anything. I think this was somebody who, you know, went out. Um, they're not somebody who drinks a lot. They didn't understand the impact it would have on them when they, they drank this. Um, it, it's not something they're going to do again. I don't think you need to send them to any kind of, of treatment. And usually the judge follows that recommendation. Um, then we have other judges in other parts of the state who are pretty notorious. Uh, we have one that's a, a county over from us um, uh, who used to send kids to jail on minor in possession charges. You have a little bit of alcohol and you're under 21. The state statute of Michigan doesn't even allow a judge to send a defendant to jail on that charge, but these judges were doing it anyway. And when they had a drunk driving case, they were sending people to jail very first time out. They were um, you know, making them do ridiculous amounts of alcohol and drug testing. You know, You may have been driving for 30 years, never had even so much as a speeding ticket, but you pick up one drunk driving charge and you're at a .08 just at the very, very edge of the limit. Um, and they're making you drug and alcohol test five times a week. You're having to go to AA three times a week. You're having to do all these other things that you know, didn't really do anything positive or didn't accomplish anything for a person who isn't a regular drinker, who just went out one time and you know probably got into the situation because they're not a regular drinker. So it varies a lot. Um, Recently, I, I've noticed that there's been a bit more of a trend to get away from just hammering people on this, and more courts are being a bit more individual-centered. Uh, but really, a lot of it depends on the judge and it depends on the probation officer. Um, you know, for instance, I, I have a case right now uh, in a nearby county where my client was convicted of uh, an assault. He threw something at his, you know, ex-wife's new husband um, and there's there's a longer story it was it was a, a more complicated situation than that but that's what he ended up pleading to there was no indication he was involved in any kind of drugs or alcohol there was no indication of anything related to those but they're still making him drug tests and alcohol tests twice a week so that's kind of a pointless exercise and I the cynical part of me says well you know we've got a lot of these places that do private drug testing or that do these kinds of places that are making some campaign donations to judges. <laughs> and maybe that's influencing a little bit. Uh, you know, we had that situation in Pennsylvania a couple years ago where there was a private prison complex and they were literally bribing judges 
to sentence children to prison uh, when the children, you know, were clearly uh, probation candidates, or they even if they uh, weren't probation candidates, they should have been put in a more specialized um, youth kind of place. But they were sending them to prison because they were getting kickbacks from the prison company. And, you know, there's a cynical part of me that says there's some of that happening in a lot of these places too, just maybe not as blatant. Do you think, though, that that we've been talking about uh, DUI offenses primarily here, but let's let's talk about things like uh, domestic violence. Let's talk about uh, things like financial crimes or shoplifting, at least in your opinion. Is there a need to at least look at whether or not uh, substance use or abuse may have been a factor in these cases? Oh, absolutely there is. Um, absolutely there is. Um, I can, here, here's one thing I can tell you. Anytime I get a uh, retail fraud involving a large amount of items uh, or a home invasion or, um, you know, certain kinds of other theft charges, especially when they're uh, like what we have a mission called uttering and publishing, which is basically forging checks. The first thing I always ask my client is, so what's your heroin habit like? And nine times out of 10, they'll come back and say, oh, I'm using a couple packs a day. Theft crimes, for the most part, not, not little stuff like, you know, maybe a little shoplifting, but major theft crimes, uh, home invasions, things like that, tend to be motivated, at least in, in the part of Michigan where I'm located, by uh, heroin addiction and methamphetamine and crack addiction. Um, mostly heroin addiction at this point. It used to be, years and years ago, it was crack, cocaine, and methamphetamine. Now heroin is, is kind of the big thing. Um, and as soon as I get one of those cases, I almost the first question I ask my client, how much heroin do you use? And they say, oh, two or, you know, a couple packs a day. So that is what underlies a lot of the theft-related crimes. Violent crimes like assault, domestic violence, things like that, um, there tends to be less drugs like heroin or cocaine or, or anything like that involved. There does tend to be a lot of alcohol involved in those cases, um, so much so that some judges and some prosecutors just assume that if there is a domestic violence case that alcohol is involved. That's an unwarranted assumption. It's, it's not nearly as high uh, of an influence as, say, the heroin is on major theft kind of cases. But it definitely does get involved a lot. I, I get a lot of cases, probably about half of them, where, you know, spouses or boyfriend, girlfriend, or, or what have you, um, are drinking while they're having an argument and things escalate. Now, the one thing I will tell you is I have never had an assault-related case related to marijuana. <laughs> You know, people who start drinking get angry and they, you know, start to think that they're they're superheroes and they can, you know, take on anybody they want to. People who are smoking marijuana when they get angry just decide they're not going to share anymore. And that's kind of how they get back at people. <laughs> so I've never had a, an assault case involving marijuana, but I've had a lot of them involving alcohol. I, I want to, uh, Stephen, I want to circle back to marijuana in, in just a minute, but I, but you, you touched on on uh, heroin as a factor in, in some of these cases that you deal with. And now Michigan is not unique. Um, her the use of heroin is on the rise. Uh, Heroin-related death is on the rise. And that's a whole other topic. I think uh, we could probably talk for quite a long time about that. Uh, just in a general sense, when you find that to be true, and, and in and I'm hearing you say you find that to be true fairly often, that these crimes are motivated in part by uh, the need to support an addiction to heroin or Oxycontin or some drug like that. Does that change how you advocate for your client when you go into the courtroom? It does. It does quite a bit because, you know, the problem that we're going to have is if I've got a client who's a heroin addict and they're up on a theft charge, they're going to be back on another charge, um, and it may not even be it may not even be you know far in the future. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking of a specific client of mine who I had uh, who was up on um, a bad check scheme case, and um, that particular client ended up being she was being held without bond, but she ended up being released because the county jail was overcrowded. While she was released, she got arrested not once, not twice, but three times for stealing flat screen TVs from Walmart, all because she needed to support her heroin habit. This is while she's already out on bond on another case. 
and then they arrest her on the on the on the new shoplifting case for stealing the the TVs. The judge puts her out on the street. A week later, she does the same thing. Judge puts her out on the street. Two days later, she does the same thing in a different Walmart. Um, this was somebody whose problem wasn't that she was greedy. It, her problem wasn't that she really really liked having flat screen TVs. Her problem was that she had a monkey on her back and. Um, she needed money to support that habit to keep herself from getting sick. In a, in a very sort of global picture here, does the criminal justice system, at least from, from your viewpoint, understand this and, and treat these individuals accordingly? I, I think that they understand it. I think they're having a hard time grasping how to treat it accordingly because it's not a simple problem um you know it's it's kind of a cliche but it's true a person who's got an addiction problem has to want to get over their addiction problem before you're going to make any progress and the courts that's really beyond the ability of the courts to make somebody want to do that you know they can punish the person they can lock them up they can try to make things as miserable for them as they can in hopes that what that's going to do is convince them that the only way out of this is to want to change. But quite frankly, a lot of times all it does is it drives them further into addiction because they're upset, so what do they do to feel better? They put a needle in their arm. Um, that change has to come from inside, and I don't know that, honestly, a, a, a court has the ability to make that kind of change. What one client told me one time, she was being completely honest, and um, it totally opened my eyes. She said, I'm going to tell you something. She goes, I love my heroin more than I love my children. And they can take away my children, and I'll be very upset, and I'll be very sad, but I can always go out and score more heroin. I'm not surprised to, to hear that, you know, based on my experience working in this field for so long. And, and again, this is just part of that conversation about balancing punishment versus public safety versus uh, the needs of the individual. It's, it's, it's just an ongoing conversation. I used to uh, say, uh, rather flippantly, I think, that uh, somebody, no, nobody gets into treatment on their own is how I should say it. You know, they're getting pressure from somewhere, what I would call the four L's, either my liver, my lover, my livelihood, or the law. One of those things is, is at my back pushing me into this. Uh, so it's just, a, it's, it, this is just an ongoing conversation. But let, let's circle back. Now to, to marijuana, there's some, some real momentum for legalizing recreational marijuana uh, across the country and, and as we have discussed uh, here in Michigan. Uh, so let's, um, tell, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your experience with that and, and what you see the challenges are going forward? Well, you know, I, I should start out by saying I'm, I'm all in favor of of legalizing it, quite honestly. Um, I, I see a, a lot of economic benefits to it. Um, I, quite honestly, don't think it will have a tremendous impact in the number of people who use marijuana. I, I know a lot of people uh, who you would never suspect to go out and smoke marijuana. Um, so I don't think it will have a huge impact uh, on the number of people who use it. I think what it will have a huge impact on is the number of people who have criminal convictions as a result of using it. Um, and it'll have a huge impact on you know, how much money we have in state budgets. Um, Colorado is, is experiencing a, a big economic um, boon from having legalized recreational marijuana, for instance. And I think that uh, that's a model that more states should be looking at. You know, from a practical perspective, like I said earlier, I have never once had a case involving an assault where uh, the person who committed the assault was using marijuana. Um, I can't say the same about alcohol. Alcohol tends to trigger angry drunks. Uh, angry marijuana users just, you know, give you a bad look and say, I'm not gonna share anymore. Um, you know, in terms of the challenges that we're going to have, um, one of the challenges we won't have for sure if this happens is we won't have any problems, I don't think, at least, to the extent that we have them now, we're not going to have the problems with jail crowding that we have. Um, there is a vastly inordinate number of people who are being 
held in jails and prisons on marijuana-related charges of one type or another. Um, you free up those beds, you free up a lot of space for people who actually are doing something very dangerous. Um, one of the problems that we might have, and, and we're already dealing with this because, like I said, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference in terms of usage rates, um, we're going to have issues dealing with things like you know, driving while under the influence of marijuana. Now, we already have laws on that um, in some of these states. Will it increase the number of people who are doing it slightly? Maybe slightly, but I don't think it'll be a huge change. I don't think that we're going to have to have a huge number of changes in our law to deal with it. Um, what we will probably have to, quite honestly, uh, deal with is how to change the attitudes of law enforcement and probation officers and judges. Um, the biggest problem that we've had in Michigan with our mer medical marijuana law is we have judges and probation officers who want to practice medicine. You know, uh, you've got uh, a defendant who's got um, some kind of debilitating disease, for instance, uh, might have HIV, and they're taking a lot of drugs to treat that medical condition. Well, those drugs can cause someone to be very, very sick. I had a, a client who um, absolutely, you know, was essentially bedridden because of the drugs he had to take because uh, of his HIV status. But when he smoked medical, when he smoked marijuana, he was able to function. He was able to get out of bed. He was able to keep food down, and he held down a very, very nice job. He had a lot of responsibilities. Had to do a lot of travel. Um, oversaw a, a big staff, and he did it all very well as long as he could smoke marijuana to kind of alleviate the symptoms of the other treatment he was uh, experiencing. In fact, uh, it's, it's interesting, earlier this week there was a study released, um, I believe it was the University of Michigan conducted the study, that said that people who use medical marijuana after you know they've been diagnosed with some kind of a, a debilitating medical condition will use 64% less opiates. They're trading in these, these drugs that are harsher, that are more addictive, um, and they're getting much better relief from something that is easier to obtain, that is not quite as harsh, and doesn't have all of the side effects. Um, but the problem we have is we have judges all over the state who will tell defendants, I don't care what your situation is, I don't care if your doctor says that this is appropriate for you, while you're on probation for this shoplifting or this domestic assault or this failing to uh, change lanes for a police officer parked at the side of the road, you are not going to use your medical marijuana. And if you do, I'm going to put you in jail. Um, we have police officers who essentially treat everybody um, who has some marijuana, even if they have a medical marijuana card that says that they can have it, as if they're junkies. Um, they just they assume that everyone's just a stoner who's looking for an excuse to use it. And I don't think that the 68-year-old grandmother um, who had glaucoma that I you know talked with last week, uh, who was you know facing charges of uh, manufacture of marijuana because you know she had some marijuana growing in her basement. I'm pretty sure she wasn't a pusher. <laughs> um, but that's how they treat everyone. They they really. I think don't understand that two-thirds of the voters in Michigan approve this law. And what they're doing is they're trying to undermine the will of the electorate. Uh, and that's not their job. Their job is to deal with justice. Their job is to deal with enforcing the laws. That are, not to enforce the law to a harsher degree than it is written. And unfortunately, that's the attitude that a lot of judges and, uh, and law enforcement officers and probation officers have. And that's going to be the biggest thing we're going to have to deal with. This is going to be very fascinating to watch. Um, there is still, uh, as you say, there are attitudes um, that that are uh, against the idea of uh, legalizing uh, marijuana. I saw a, a blurb today, I believe it was on Twitter, about some study that uh, came out that said uh, that marijuana is more harmful uh, to the brain chemistry than alcohol. So I think there's there's still uh, an argument on, on both sides. It's going to be fascinating to watch over the next 5, 10, 15 years. But, you know, attitudes can change 
very quickly. I think just from a sociological perspective, in 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 my lifetime, there's been very few things that have moved as fast as this. Uh, I, I guess I think uh, specifically of marriage equality. I thought the the uh, uh, attitudes about marriage equality changed rather quickly in the last five years or so, and we may see. Yeah, that, that is absolutely true, and and we're seeing a lot of that. Like you said, they're seeing a lot of the same thing in terms of people, you know, recognizing that there may be some legitimate use uh, for things like marijuana, and you know, maybe. You know, if we're going to legalize, if we're going to allow alcohol to be legal, which, you know, we tried to outlaw at one point, and that didn't really work very well. <laughs> it worked well for Al Capone, but not for a whole lot of other people. Um, but, you know, maybe maybe we need to look at, you know, we can outlaw this, but should we? You know, and, and I think a lot of times we have laws that are on our books simply because legislators said, you know, we can, and they didn't bother to ask if we should. And I think that's a large part of what's happening. I think a lot of people are starting to ask that, that more important question, you know, well, well, should we? Should we make these laws that throw a lot of people into jail and into prison uh, for when you, you know, when it comes down to it, are very, very minor infractions? Um, is this whole war on drugs thing all it's cracked up to be? Is it really accomplishing what we want or is it actually making the situation worse? And I'm seeing a lot of people, you know, especially in recent years, really come back and start to say, you know, maybe this isn't working. Maybe we need to take a new approach. And I think that's what's really going to, to spur a lot of these changes. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to watch. Uh, Stephen, I, I want to thank you for spending the time with me this morning. I, I, I learned a lot. I've enjoyed this conversation. And uh, hopefully we'll do it again. It's always a pleasure. And I'd be happy to come back. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ADE Spotlight Podcast. I hope you found it insightful. If you have any comments, suggestions for future topics, or would like to be featured in an upcoming episode, please let us know. You may reach us by email at support at adeincorp.com.